Hey, metal fans, this is Michael Wilson from Queensryche, and you're listening to Focus on Metal. Focus on Hey Metalhead, Scott Thompson here, welcoming you to that which we call Focus on Metal. Holy crap, my monitors are wicked loud. Looks like nothing's uh, translating from the sound I'm hearing in my ears to uh, what's coming up on the digital audio station. But anyways, holy crap, my monitors are loud. Anyways, just kind of talking to myself. So what is in store for you guys this week? Well, a few weeks ago, Richie got on the phone with Brian L. Naren. Boy, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, Brian. But there isn't a trailing E, so I'm guessing it isn't Narone. But if it is, man, I do apologize. Brian's here to talk about a book that came out in the fall of last year called Rusted Metal, a guide to heavy metal and hard rock music in the Pacific Northwest from 1970 to 1995. So, yeah, we're a little bit late to the game on this one, but it does tie into a bigger picture kind of thing happening here as well. But uh, if you go and you read any of the reviews for this book from any of the notable metal sites they will all give this thing a big thumbs up in fact you know within there you know 900 pages in here tons of bands one thing they will note is that every band pretty much gets equal treatment so you know if you have this band you know cypher versus queensrike they're all getting about the same amount of treatment in the book no favoritism no more of one and more of the other so real even-handed treatment of 25 years of pacific northwest metal and like i said 900 pages so a lot of good stuff here and uh, if anything i know at least one of the reviews talked about that the only detriment is is there is so much information here but if you are really a metal historian or just hey a big fan from the pacific northwest you like that scene or whatever definitely a good one to go out and pick up for yourself and as kind of the tie-in is uh hopefully later on uh this year we'll have uh contributor brian heaton back on the show giving us insight into the new queen's book that is coming together as well of which he is very very much involved so uh it'll be good to have brian back on the show and that's part of why he hasn't been able to participate as much as he wants to in the show for a while now is uh, he had just been hot and heavy in this book. And, you know, I got to say, if I had the choice to, I'd probably be doing the same thing as him. So lots of good stuff with uh, Richie and Brian Naren this week. So with that, I'm just going to shut the hell up and uh, let Richie get on with it and get you into all the good stuff about Rusted Metal, a guide to heavy metal and hard rock music and the Pacific Northwest with our guest, Brian L. Naren. Hello. Is that Brian? This is, hey, how are you? Hey, it's Richie from Focus on Metal. How are you doing? I'm, I'm all right, Richie. So um, have you done many interviews yourself for the book? Um, I've done I've done four or five here just recently. Uh, I listened to a, a podcast last night that got released last night on the Exploring Washington State um, podcast, and it went pretty well, you know, um, the host uh, asked some pretty good questions, and I was able to supply answers, and I didn't sound too idiotic, so it worked out good. 
Mm-hmm. But yeah, I'm not. I'm 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 comfortable talking with uh, with just about anybody about just about anything. Okay, what you have here now with me is you have an Irish guy who has a fair knowledge of metal, not as much geographically. When it comes to the north, the northwest metal, what I know more or less are the bigger bands and then the grunge bands. Sure. Um. So the first question I have is uh has a book like this ever been done before well a, a a book of this size no has not been done before a book strictly about the hard rock and heavy metal scene uh in the pacific northwest no why do you think there's never been a book done about the metal scene in the pacific northwest well i think that this area has always been kind of uh quietly sequestered away in the northwest of the country. Um, not a lot of major tours um, made it to Seattle as much, um, or even even mid-tier tours, because, you know, the next big city south of us would be Portland, and that's mostly kind of a punk scene. And then San Francisco in California, um, I think a lot of, I think a lot of artists, decided to bypass the Pacific Northwest. So they just left us to our own devices. We've always had a really rich musical community here, uh, but we've we've always been kind of left to do what we wanted to do. And while we were influenced by a lot of the same artists, um, I think a lot of musicians, especially ones I knew and know, were not tied down to what they should have sounded like. You know, there's a lot of bands who, like Black Flag as well as Black Sabbath and Cheap Trick as well as Kiss. And, and so it didn't make a difference that your influences were all over the board. You liked what you liked. And then the sound that a lot of musicians around here created were their own. Um, so I think part of part of that reason is that we just, we just were up here uh, just by ourselves. I think the other, the other thing is that, uh, by the time you know this area did explode in the late 80s and early 90s with the grunge groups or um a, a lot of people thought that that's what we were all about you know other than Jimi hendrix and hart uh, that's just pretty much what people thought you know the seattle I, uh, uh, boise portland oregon vancouver bc area was really about mm. and, and so um, you know that scene has been pretty well documented. Uh, there was a local, a local writer who did a magazine called Loser, and talked about that '90s scene uh, quite a bit. But you know, there's three or four pages about hard rock, and and almost was kind of dismissed. Hmm. So why why people uh, didn't focus? on this area for their hard rock. I'm not exactly sure. You know, when you ask kind of a lay person about Northwest hard rock and metal, probably the first band people will think of is, is Queensryche. Yeah. You know, they always call Queensryche a Seattle band. Well, Queensryche is really a Bellevue band, a Redmond band on the east side of the big lake between Seattle and Bellevue. Um, we had a, we had a plethora of, fantastic bands. My joke was always, 
yeah, you know, the 90s scene was really great. And it was, it was fun seeing Soundgarden and Alice in Chains and Nirvana in these clubs. But you should have been here for the scene before when we had bands like Culprit and Shadow and Air Appearance and Coven and Rail and on and on and on and on. Uh, really, the we had a scene here that happened relatively unknown to the rest of the world. Brian, do you think that a lot of bands um, aren't, considered a Northwest band because they might have gone to LA. Like when you look at the likes of Poison, Cinderella, they all moved West, went to LA, became famous. And people associate them with all the other LA bands that, you know, maybe Black and Blue might have traveled to LA and people don't associate them with being a Northwest band. They might say, yeah, they were lumped in with all the LA bands that a lot of the bands that to, to become famous, that they had to travel south and that a lot of them probably aren't considered to be from the Pacific Northwest because people don't know where they're from. They just know them from MTV when they became big and they just lumped them in with all the rest of them. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there was, there was certainly a bit of that because in the, in the old music business, you either needed to be in New York, you needed to be in LA um, to, to get discovered, to, play the clubs to be in front of the, you know, the people that, that made the deals happen. Um, you know, there was a few bands from around here that started here that thought LA was the answer. And most of them went down and came back with their tails between their legs because it was a, you know, it's a big mean world down there in LA. Um, and really not too many bands, you know, succeeded, um, even at a, uh, um, 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 how should I say? Uh, uh, gosh, now most bands just didn't succeed. You know, they ended up coming back home. You know, it was funny. It was funny. A band like Candlebox, they were from the Seattle area, and, and they went to LA to get big. But then Seattle was the epicenter in the early '90s, and they ended up coming back, and you know. Uh, reclaiming their their Seattle ship and 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 now they're known as a band from Seattle. You know there were uh, th- there were other bands that uh, you know went to went to L.A. and like Black and Blue they started off as Movie Star and and were back in Black and Blue and ended up going to L.A. and and they had a modicum of success. Um, you know got signed to a major, put a few records out. You know Tommy Thaler's done pretty well with himself uh, down the line. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, in our area, we, you know, a lot of people just came back home. Uh, you know, a few, a few expats have stayed down in LA or Arizona and still, you know, they still, you know, claim, you know, their sort of citizenship to Seattle. Um, but a lot of bands came home and tried to regroup and, and, uh, you know, started other bands. That's one of the things this scene, probably not unlike other scenes, you know, band members played with other band members from these bands and, and uh, you know, tried to form something new. Um, there certainly were cores of people that just kept trying until they got it right. Um, you know, like Jeff Ahmet and Stone Gossard, you know, they started off doing punk rock bands and then, you know, they did Mother Love Bone and with their kind of, uh, you know, kind of 
guns and glam and and then turned into Pearl Jam. And of course, they were in Green River before that, you know, kind of the Northwest Stooges. And so, you know, they they persevered and, and are doing well today. Mm-hmm. But, Brian, the criteria to get in this book, other than being a, a hard rock or a heavy metal band, Surely some, the band had to meet a certain criteria. Like, did they have to have a release out? Did they have to be gone for so long? Like, what was the minimum requirement for a band to be included in the book? Well, you know, we we have over, we have over 600 band bios in the book. Um, and that certainly isn't anywhere near how many bands there probably were. Um, Really, the prerequisite was that y- you were a you were a band that played hard rock and and uh, and and had some kind of following. You may have been um, you might have had a tape. Uh, you might have put a record out. You, you might have been uh, a band that you know opened up for some of the bigger bands in the area. Um, uh, they were you know we included bands that we knew of. Like there were bands I knew of that James didn't know, and transversely, uh, bands James knew and, and followed when he was young that I had no idea about. It from the Portland area, you know, we we just tried to include as many bands that we were aware of, whether there were bands we'd seen, our friends had seen, bands that we'd seen in the local like Rocket magazine, which was a, a big music. Uh, music and entertainment magazine that ran for many, many years in, in the Seattle and Portland area, you know, that was really it. So we were just trying to track down these obscure bands as well as, as getting more information on some of the more prominent bands from this area uh, to tell our story. Mm. Brian, was it easy to track down the obscure bands? Because there must be bands in this that, they haven't released anything maybe in a long time. They're no longer together. And you wanted to include them in the book, but maybe you wanted to flesh it out a little bit more. Um, I'm sure social media might have helped, but was it was it was it difficult to to, to find some of these guys? Uh, yeah, you know, and there was people we still didn't find, you know. Um, uh, it, it's social media is a, was was fantastic in that way. I mean, um were able to reach out over miles and time and, and, you know, and, and oceans in some cases to track people down. And for the most part, people were really willing to talk to us and were pleased that we wanted to include them in the book. Of course, James and I, and uh, a couple of the other writers in the book, uh, James Tolan, um, he, uh, he's definitely a, a guy who, I uh, had a lot of connections. Was a big uh, was immersed in the scene back in the '80s. Uh, he knew a lot of people, a lot of bands, a lot of musicians, promoters. He was uh, he was an excellent resource for stories, but also opening the doors for us because he was a, a trusted friend to many of these people that we didn't know. Um, and it, you know, it gave us it, it gave us a kind of pre-approval. Um, that they could trust that we were going to take their stories and, and, and be fair and, and, uh, be truthful. Um, another gentleman, uh, uh, Jim Sutton, uh, our, our fourth writer, 
uh, same same kind of scenario. He was in a position where uh, he was kind of a scenester, saw a lot of bands, knew a lot of musicians. So the four of us together knew many of these people already. And then, you know, like a drop in the water, the ripples span out and, you know, they tell people and they tell people. And then we're getting emails and phone calls and um, um, people wanting to meet up and talk and people wanting to send us music. Um, for us to listen to, uh, flyers for their shows to, to show and prove that, hey, they were a band. We may have only been a band for six months, but, you know, we did a show with Culprit. And, you know, so it was really great because a, a lot of word of mouth. It was kind of like a brush fire, you know, it just needed a little bit of a little bit of spark and a little bit of wind. And, and we were able to uh, corral quite a few people and, and make a lot of connections and 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 we enjoyed it. We discovered a lot of music, a lot of musicians, a lot of bands, a lot of music we'd never even heard. And, and we felt like collectively we we knew a bunch. Hmm. That was that was great for for our part of the journey. Hmm. Now going back pre grunge, you were probably a reader of the magazines, maybe Circus Hit Parade or Rip, maybe oh, yeah. even Kerrang, Metal Hammer, maybe. Kerrang. Now you take the mm-hmm. big you take the big bands out. Take Queensryche Heart, maybe Metal Church out of it. Um, did the magazines represent the Pacific Northwest metal scene well at all? Other than the three or four bigger bands, or was, did they really ignore the scene and focus maybe on New York, Florida for death metal, maybe LA a lot more than they did the Pacific Northwest? Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Um, the only exception I would make would be Metal Forces. I think I think Metal Forces from the very first issue, uh, like the Dave Murray, the Dave Murray Quits Maiden issue, um, it had interviews with five or six um, Northwest bands in, that, in their very first issue. Um, uh, they were always a big supporter of the Northwest metal and hard rock scene. So you could you could almost you know set your watch by the fact that you're gonna you're gonna read about culprit uh, you're gonna read about air apparent you're gonna read uh, about crisis you're gonna read um, about a number of bands that weren't in the sort of top tier of the of the northwest local bands but I, I would agree with you the most most bands from the northwest were were not given much press in those days. Mm. Brian, what about TV coverage? Likes of MTV, and I'm not sure what the music channel was in Canada. Um, were they given any coverage at all, the smaller bands? Mm, not really. In Canada, they had Good Rockin' Tonight, and they had, uh, um, there was another show, I can't, can't remember, it was Night Flight. I think that actually came out of Chicago. Um no, um, in Seattle, um, in Seattle, you know, the only the only MTV initially was Rail when they won the Basement Tapes. Uh, Rail uh, won a competition. Um, they got a, a record contract. They did a four track EP. Um, another band from Seattle also won the Basement Tapes. A band called the Allies. They were a kind of a. a, a a philosophical dance band, I'll call it. Um, uh, David Kincaid, who went on to, to uh, form and, and still 
leads the Brandos. He's East Coast now. Um, but those two bands came to some prominence as far as MTV was concerned, but they came and went pretty fast. Mm. How does so a... We were just, Sorry, Brian. Yeah, we were just, well, I was just going to say, we we just were not uh, favored. We, uh, you know, you know, they were looking at LA, they were looking at New York and, and, you know, quiet little Seattle was just left on its own devices. Hmm. How did this book end up being 900 pages? Because this fascinates me because like I bought the book and it came in the door and I'm like, holy crap, this thing is like, (laughs) it's like a telephone directory, right? It's uh, exactly, exactly. And one of the things you have in, in the introduction is, it started off being a history of the Pacific Northwest metal scene, but it's ended up being an encyclopedia of the scene for, with all the bands from A to Z. How, how does it morph from one to the other? Well, you know, um, James uh, James is a storyteller. Um, James has been involved with publication and writing books and magazines uh, for 20 years. That's what he does. He likes to tell stories. and. Um, he and I, he and I had talked about doing such a book years ago because there, you know, this scene, this genre had never been fairly, uh, assessed or written about. Um, and, uh, so we, we, we thought that we would start by telling the story, the history of Pacific Northwest hard rock and metal, but the way, the way the interviews were coming and just the mass of interviews we got, because we have over 90 interviews. I, I, I forget the number I've got in my head. Um, and then we were looking at this as being kind of a piece of memorabilia. And we started putting kind of a backbone to the book. And it became wildly apparent that this thing was going to be bigger than we thought. It, it couldn't be a it couldn't be a story that we could tell stem to stern, so we opted pretty early on that this was going to be a reference guide, and a reference guide is kind of handy because you can do things in an alphabetical or chronological order, kind of all at the same time. Um, it is a it's a it's a no pressure kind of book in the sense that you don't. I mean, you can you can go back to it several times and reference the information that you want. So it's not like you have to tie yourself down to this thing. Um, but we, we started seeing how many bands we had discovered and bands that we already knew about. And we just thought it was a natural um, progression to go with the reference guide. And then we would we would insert the interviews that related, you know, sort of alphabetically, chronologically in the reference guide. And then, you know, we said, well, we should really do like a concert listing, you know, so we can show where these bands had opened up for nationally touring bands or transversely, you know, the, the, the other way around, you know, we could, we could show flyers that, uh, that matched up with the dates. You know, we did a, a, a small discography of local uh, records and tapes and CDs. You know, then we started, we, well, we could talk about the venues, we could talk about the recording studios, and the next thing you know, this thing becomes a, a college textbook for Pacific Northwest music scene. 
and it just grew. I mean, we started this book six years ago. We okay. didn't think it was going to take nearly that long. <laughs> we, we, we figured, you know, I remember we had a conversation thinking, you know, it'd be nice to be right around 350 or 400 pages. And it, it grew to that like right away. And yeah, it, it, it just became this monster and it took us a year and a half to edit it. Wow. Wow. I want to ask you a question about, uh, I did a project on the show of little mountain sound studios in Vancouver, which is not, not too far north of Seattle. And I interviewed a lot of the guys that worked there, uh, Bob Rock, Mike Frazier, and, uh, you know, some of the, the owners there. And we did, I did a, like a nine or 10 part project on, on that studio. And of course, that studio in the 80s ended up being the studio for hard rock bands. Bon Jovi, Aerosmith, Poison, everybody, they all went up there, White Snake. Um, but in Seattle, it never really happened like that, where there was a studio like Little Mountain. And yet you had all these hard rock bands. I know some of them went up to Vancouver. C- can you put your finger on why there wasn't a studio like that in the Was- in Washington State, that, like that happened with Vancouver? Well, you know, there there'd been some small there'd been some small studios uh, that were around. Um, uh, they were mostly created by mu- musicians and 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 music in, enthusiasts. Um, you know, we had Bear uh, Creek Studios was there for many, many years. Uh, actually, still is. Uh, Crow Recording, um, a popular studio in in Redmond, was uh, the Triad Studio where um, where Queensrÿche and, and many other bands recorded their demos. Uh, London Bridge Studios um, um, did a lot of business uh, for several years. I, I think it was part of the economics. Uh, you know, the Pacific Northwest, while they've been on the cutting edge of aerospace and and technology over the course of the last, you know, 20 or 30 years, uh, 40, 50, 60 years ago, uh, you know, Seattle, Tacoma, um, you know, kind of backwoods, kind of run down, uh, trying to figure out who they are. Um, and I just don't think that there was, I just don't think there was a lot of uh, call I mean, there's a lot of bands they wanted to play, but, you know, uh, it was expensive to record. It was expensive to put your own shows on. Um, but these these little these studios, Robert Lang Studios, Star Trek uh, Studios, you know, they were around and and people, you know, could save up their save up their money from the jobs and, and record in the middle of the night because it was cheaper to do it then than to do it during the day when, you know, uh, maybe a, a TV station or radio station was using the equipment to to do their advertising. Um, I just think that I just think that there was a, there was a lot of will, but there just wasn't a lot of way. And and again, you know, we just were up and out of the way. Um, Seattle is a much more prominent city now than it was 40 years ago, 50 years ago. It was a it was a seaboard town and lots of lumber and and uh, you know, and the air, the uh, airplane business was just kind of starting to take off. And of course, technology came in in the '80s and exploded in the '90s here. And mm. then there was money. Then there was money for studios. And then, you know, 
then these studios that were around got better equipment and more studios started coming around. But, you know, there's a lot of bands who went up to Mushroom in Vancouver. A lot of bands went to um, up, up north of Seattle, um, up, up to, uh, like I say, Bear Creek. Um, uh, there were some some small studios uh, in Oregon, down south, uh, you know, in people's garages and, and their basements. And, and uh, you know, we just we just did it old school. Mm. Now, I want to talk for a minute about the grunge scene. Um, you would have been there at the very beginning of that. But yeah. even be, even before then, um, a lot of those grunge bands, like Alice in Chains, they had the glam look. Um, you Did you see Alice in Chains when they had that look? And, and even Mother Loveborn, in a, in, a, in a way, had, uh, you know, the hair and you know, to, to some makeup and stuff like that. Um, did you see the bands back then? I did. I saw a lot of those bands back then. I, I saw a lot of these bands change from from their beginnings, either being, you know, kind of like really glammy and, and then turning into what they became or, or bands that were trying to find themselves that, you know, were more kind of punky and stooge, stooges-like and then, you know, got more like poison. I mean, there, you know, I think our scene was just like a lot of other scenes, you know, people were trying to find their way. And, uh, and so they were, you know, they were jumping in on trends. Sometimes we had a lot of musicians that, you know, damn the torpedoes, they're going to stick true to wherever their original vision was. But, you know, there was a funny, there's kind of a funny feeling around here back then where, you know, people who wanted to be famous, I I think they kind of were looked down on, you know, I, I know that, People love Green River and Malfunction, uh, but when Mother Love Bone got together, when the cores of those bands got together, there's a lot of people that didn't really like them because they thought they were selling out. Oh. Um, Hi, this is Mike Howe from Metal Church, and you are listening to Focus on Metal. But, you know, another thing that was strong in this area was punk, was punk rock and a lot of dance bands. There was a lot of dance hard rock bands uh, that played and so there's a lot of competition for, for venues and dance floors because the owners of these establishments wanted people that were going to come in and bring a lot of people with them and they were going to spend a lot of money partying and having fun. And, um, you know, with a lot of punk rock clubs and, and hard rock places, you know, people were just showing up for the music and, you know, maybe buy a T-shirt or a tape. And um, so the Seattle area was kind of more in favor of, those kinds of bands because it was a, a monetary situation we had a really poor all ages scene here they they didn't really like all ages scenes for several reasons for crime and drugs and for other things i'm sure motivated by money and uh, so they made it really hard for the, the youngest of our enthusiasts and bands to actually be able to be creative and play live and do things like that so a lot of those bands ended up playing in people's homes and yards and garages, wherever they could play. But mm. yes, I mean, I, I saw a ton of musicians that, you know, that that started up, they were in several bands and, you know, they found the right niche and uh, they presented themselves in a fashion that, you know, drew more attention. Um, you know, certainly bands like Soundgarden, um, Alice in Chains, 
were all kind of different when they started, but they, those bands all continued to, to hone their craft and, you know, they, they changed. They, they didn't really stay the same. They didn't, you know, they didn't pull an ACDC and kind of just be the same band that, you know, they, you know, Soundgarden started out as being kind of this over intellectual bohemian kind of band to kind of almost like a Zeppelin y kind of band with, you know, with major crunchy chords. And then, you know, then they, they became a bit more thoughtful and artful in some ways. So, um, yeah, you know, I, I, you know, I've lived here my whole life. I'm nearly 60. Yeah, but I, you know, I've seen kind of the growth of the scene and uh, not only, you know, from both sides of the, the stage. So I think just like any other artist, you know, you get, they're looking to grow, they're looking to create, be creative and, and, uh, you know, some changes work really well and some didn't. Mm. Brian, just before the grunge scene broke, were a lot of the, the hard rock bands playing with Alice in Chains and Soundgarden and Nirvana, like, were they all on the same bills or were they kept separate? Well, you know, um, there was, a, no, there was a, a pretty good blending of, of bands on bills. Um, it, it wasn't unusual to have, like, a metal band and a punk band and a crossover band all on the same bill. Now, the other thing, the other thing you kind of have to understand about the grunge scene, too, a lot of those bands... Well, you know, they played in the trenches and, you know, they, you know, they, they paid their dues, so to speak. You know, that scene blew up pretty fast. Um, you know, like Nirvana, you know, they just opened up for everybody. They opened up for bands that never got record deals up until they, they got some press from, from, you know, the music maker, Melody Maker, or yeah, I think it was Melody Maker wrote up a, a deal on the Seattle scene and, you know, for some reason they picked on Nirvana, but Nirvana was like, you know, they, they were the, they, they were kind of a second or third tier band in the Seattle area. You know, everybody thought Soundgarden was going to be the big band or, or mother love bone for that matter. And, uh, cause by the time Nirvana had taken off, I think, uh, Soundgarden had already been to Europe a couple of times. So no, it wasn't unusual to see, different styles of bands playing together you know you'd have acoustic you know you have um i mean there's i mean we've seen a ton of flyers where you see like girl trouble headlining with uh the fallouts and then nirvana opens up you know so you've got this kind of sludgy you know i mean a bleach was you know bleach was pretty heavy and you know they're opening up for bands that are playing kind of uh kind of almost like rockabilly music and, and, and then another band that's kind of a garage band. So, yeah. So, so that made it really interesting for people too, because it's, um, you could, you get a wide variety of of different styles of music at the same show. And I think, I think there was a, also kind of a feeling after a time where because the venues were so limited and the opportunities were so limited, I think that bands of different genres, found it advantageous to uh to play together so they could actually just do an event and sometimes it was more interesting looking at the crowd than it was at the bands mm. um one of the bands from england death leopard did when they broke america a lot of the people back home 
thought that they disappeared. You know, they practically ignored their home country and they became huge somewhere else. Um, when grunge broke, did the local scene think that a lot of the bands that the bigger bands, Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, that they were going to go off now and did practically ignore where they were from? No, I, you know, I think, uh, you know, I think we the, the, who knew people in bands, I think we were all really excited for all those bands. We were glad to see that they have the opportunity to explore the world. But the one thing I can say about most of those bands is they definitely made an effort to make sure that, you know, they they got on supporting big tours or even when they started doing their own tours, they, they were always coming home, you know. I know Alice in Chains usually, usually played a couple of times a year in big arenas or they would do like surprise shows in smaller venues, just like Soundgarden would. Even um, even Nirvana did a number of, of um, small impromptu shows where a couple of them would show up and play with Mud Honey or they would, you know, come out and play with Calamity Jane on, you know, some political show down in Portland. So, no, you know, we never felt like they were going to go away and never come back. We just, we just felt like, wow, they're, you know, the rest of the world's going to share in what we saw. And then, uh, you know, they always, you know, they always came back home. So we always felt good about that. Mm. Did you find that a lot of bands all of a sudden relocated to Seattle, um, took, uh, took on that look, and then all the record companies were all of a sudden turning up everywhere. You go to a gig and the word would oh, be yeah. out. And like, how, how did you feel about that? Because it's like any, any genre of music that once a couple of bands become big, it's overkill. It's like the hair metal scene from the late 80s that once some of the bands became big, all the, it, it really killed the scene because the labels wanted to sign every band that sounded like that band. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It, and it, it happened in Seattle, too. It was really kind of interesting because, you know, we knew all these people, these guys and gals and bands, and we would see them out at other shows. We'd see them at record shows. They would be buying records from me. We would hang out at a bar and we would have cocktails and, you know, they would come and, and see other people's shows. And when the scene exploded, yes, other musicians came to Seattle, got outfitted, tried to blend in. And, you know, a lot of those label people, you know, they got sent to Seattle to find the next Nirvana and, a ton of bands got signed out of the Seattle area that probably should have never gotten signed. I mean, good on them that they got a record contract, but a lot of those bands, it was a one and done and it was a bad experience for them. And then being in the clubs or even being out on the streets, um, because uh, a lot of the, and I'm sure it's this way in many cities, you know, the nightlife, you know, extends out into the, out into the open and, and a lot of our friends who were musicians, who are now famous musicians, stopped coming around and having cocktails and seeing their favorite local bands um, because they were just getting hounded. Um, and, you know, it, it wasn't any fun for them to be out. So it, it changed the dynamic, not only for the musicians themselves, but for, for us as, as fans and friends, you know, because we would see Steve Turner out all the time. We'd see Duff McKagan out and about, especially after the 
you know, after the fact uh, that when he was done with guns, he finally was able to get back out. But, you know, you'd see him before, you know, uh, before the explosion, he'd be out just, you know, hanging out with people because he's just a guy. He's just a, you know, guy from Seattle who has friends that are still in, in, in shitty little bars and bands, but enjoys that. And uh, it took a few years until, you know, the record labels were chasing another town. You know, they they started chasing, uh, you know, a couple of cities down south and kind of they just sort of forgot about Seattle again, even though a lot of those bands continued to prosper. You know, Seattle kind of became a, a, a kind of a safe zone again for people to, to get back out. So um, minus COVID, you know, I, I still go out um, to clubs uh, pretty often and I, and I see, I see these musicians and, you know, they're comfortable and willing to have a conversation with you because they're not under the scrutiny of, you know, the A&R people or whomever had been chasing them down all those years ago. Mm. The scene now up there, like before COVID hit, um, what sort of music is prominent there? Like, does the grunge thing still have this huge fingerprint all over everything? Or has melodic rock come back in in a way? Or, you know, the influence of heart since they maybe got into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Or, or even early Queens, like people are rediscovering their their music. Or maybe even the heavier stuff like Metal Church. Or is any, Are there bands that sound like that? Or is it, is it still a lot of, you know, Pearl Jam wannabes? No, our scene up here, in my opinion, is, it's it's the same as, that it's always been. We've got artists and musicians who are trying to create a sound that's their own, for the most part. You know, there are some wannabe sound-alikes, but you're always going to have that. Um, and any and and even that being said, some of those bands are still really great, really fun. So the scene, uh, they're still great metal bands. Um, there's a there's a band up north uh, in Vancouver. I think they're in Abbotsford called Gatekeeper. They're fantastic. They're traditional metal. Um, they're fantastic. We've got Moss Generator here in the area. Uh, Tony Reed and that three piece band is a monster doom band. It's fantastic. You know some of the some of the old bands are still you know still peeking out and still playing occasionally. Um, Air Parents played a number of shows over the course of the last few years. Uh, TKO has played a few shows. Um, uh, you've got you've got a number of bands in the Portland area. Um, Crimson Guard uh, or Crimson Guardian. Um, you've got Solicitor. Um, you've got Glacier Reformed. Uh, you know, there's. So there's a little bit of everything. There's there's still bands that are still knocking out the the folk scene, but you know there's still artful musicians who are creative, pop. I mean, it's the scene has always been the same, um, and and that's that's the thing I, I I really appreciate that after everything we've gone through, um, you know, we still have a scene. We still have places to play. Probably. Um, well, after this thing is over, I, you know, with the COVID, you know, I'm sure we're going to lose a few more clubs. But, you know, we had rebuilt up a, 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 quite a few venues for bands to play in. And um, and I, I feel really optimistic that it'll happen again once we kind of get it all clear. Mm. Brian, 
Do you have a lot of uh, tribute bands up there? Pearl Jam tribute bands, Soundgarden tribute bands. Is there a lot of that? There's, yeah, there's a few. There's a few. Um, um, there's a few bands that are that are kind of like local. Um, there's a, a Temple of the Dog, Mother Love Bone, Pearl Jam band. They'll kind of glum them all together. Uh, there's a band that does Journey, a band that does Kansas, a band that does Scorpions. Um, there's not a lot of that up here. Um, but you know, some of them are fun. Uh, but you know, I think the, the spirit around here for the most part is, you know, uh, trying to be original and, and, uh, and like I say, I, you know, hard rock is one of, one of those things that just never seems to go away. It's, you know, it just, it just prevails generate, uh, from generation to generation. Mm hmm. All the bands in the book, Brian, what band for you did you think would be massive and they never broke? Um, gosh, that's good. That's a really good question. Um, there's, there's a few bands that were so, I thought they were so good, but you know, they just never went anywhere per se. Um, I think Air Apparent, uh, I think Air Apparent uh, is a masterful band. I think Carrie Goral as a songwriter, as a guitar player, uh, I, I think that, uh, you know, he, he came out fully, fully grown. And, and, uh, I mean, that first record, Graceful Inheritance is a, a masterpiece. Uh, it was sad that, you know, he didn't become, or his band didn't become more notable. Um, you know, there's a lot of people in Greece. There's a lot of people in Italy, a lot of people in Europe that love that band and they suit up and go play festivals every other year. And they do a great job over there. Um, Culprit was another band that, you know, in my opinion, should have been one of the bigger bands. They 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 kind of started it all. They were they were kind of our Iron Maiden in this area. TKO was a great band. You know, maybe too many um, too many versions of the band, and and maybe got a little too trendy. But Brad Sinsel has been the common common element, the songwriter singer. Um, uh, Never quite got the success that he probably deserved. Um, but those are three bands that I can think of that, you know, I felt that were really, really strong bands um, in the hard rock genre that didn't make it. There were some other musicians out of this area, like Steve Pearson from the Heats and the Rangehoods, a uh, fantastic musician, should have should have gone somewhere, but but didn't. Hmm. Uh, but, he still, but he still makes music and he'll do it. He'll do it till he can't. Yeah. Anymore. Yeah. There's. I'm looking at through the book, and I haven't looked at every band in it because there's a lot. I'll be honest with you, Brian. There's a lot of bands in in this book. I've never really heard of them. But when I was growing up, um, I got into metal around '86. Um, okay. So one of the bands you cover in the book that I thought would have been really big, and I was in in them from the beginning, was Annihilator. Um, Jeff Waters. I always felt yeah. that. They were going to break. I'm not saying that they mm -hmm. were going to. I'm not saying they were going to be as big as Metallica, Megadeth, Anthrax, or Slayer. But with the bands that were underneath that, like Testament, Death Angel, um, maybe Exodus, I, I, I thought that they'd be in that bracket. That with Jeff, you had a brilliant musician, great guitar player, real intricate metal, a lot like Megadeth. And mm -hmm. it never really happened for them. And I, I think the main reason it didn't is all the lineup changes killed them 
Um, were you in on Annihilator from the very beginning? Uh, I've been a fan. Yeah, I've been a fan of theirs for a long time. You know, they were another one of those bands where you, you hear them and it's like, I can't, you know, it's like you couldn't believe that they were so well polished so early on. You know, another another one of those musicians where, you know, he can't, you know, he just came out fully formed. I mean, I mean, he wrote, he wrote great songs, played great guitar from word one. You know, it didn't, it wasn't like he had to develop this sound or develop his songwriting. It was like there already. Um, that, you know, that's that's how I how I felt about Kerry Goral from Air Apparent. How I feel about like Chris DeGarmo and uh, Michael Wilton and and Jeff Tate from Queensrÿche. Those guys just kind of came fully formed. Uh, you know, certainly they changed their sound and morphed over time, but they they came out of the blocks you know sprinting they, i mean they were powerful and talented and skilled um and um yeah it's a shame it's a shame that a band like annihilator uh didn't do more because they were just an amazing band hmm. i i think when you look at them though it were they ever really a band because th- th- you can you can never point to them and say right it's the, the bass player was this guy. The singer was this guy. It was always Jeff, and he had a different singer. He had different drummers. He had different bass players. Th- that that hurt them big time. I think. I, I think I, I think there's you got a point there. I think that uh, I think that 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 is important from the standpoint of uh, of people looking at a group and, um, uh, but you know, I guess the output. You know what what you're hearing in your ears though. It's pretty amazing. And, and back in the day when, you know, before MTV, before the internet, you know, you had to buy a record to listen to the music or you had to buy, borrow the record from your sisters or, or whatever, you know, it wasn't like we had the ability to sort of get little teasers like we do now. Hmm. Um, and so, I mean, there's a lot of bands where if you weren't really paying attention you're like, well, it sounds like the same band, and and I didn't realize they changed the bass player, and their new singer sounds a whole lot like the old singer. So, so I don't know. You know, it's 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 funny because sometimes um, sometimes there's no there's no telling the taste of people. You know, I mean they, you know, there's there's some bands that weren't very good musicians, and they're they played kind of sloppy, but boy, there certainly was something great about that band. Whereas some bands, uh, you know, who have a lot of technical prowess and um, really polished, and sometimes they just don't appeal to enough people. Mm. It, and, and so, it, you know, it, it, it still goes right back to people who are listening. You know, what's their flavor? Mm. The, the other band, Brian, and I don't know whether these guys are actually in the book, um, I thought were going to be massive, and they had... A major label, they had big time management, um, and they recorded in Little Mountain with Bruce Fairburn, Mike Fraser, uh, was Dan Reed Network. Um, oh, I believe yeah. I believe they are from Portland, um, and mm-hmm. they never broke. They toured with Bon Jovi. <laughs> they were loved by Kerrang, all the magazines, and yeah. they were just. I think what killed them was uh, they were always compared or they were always said that they were a cross between Prince 
on Bon Jovi. And that, I think, in the end, pigeonholing them like that killed the band. It could have. Uh, they were they were a really talented band. I saw them a, a number of times back in the day. And, 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 you know, they were a lot less rock than they were dance, uh, in my opinion. Um, now, the guitar player, he certainly... He certainly uh, was a great guitar player. They had, I mean, that whole band was great. Um, to be perfectly honest, uh, you know, the reason I, the biggest reason I went to Dan Reed Network is because the ladies went there, and uh, you know, as a young man, that was uh, that was pretty important, you know, because when you're going to metal church shows, there weren't a lot of young ladies going. To <laughs> those um, but they were no, they were a great band, and yeah, they were kind of Kerrang darlings. Um, they were plastered all over the place. Um, they just weren't, you know, they just weren't hard rock enough. Um, I, and, you know, they had a lot thing. They had a lot of things going for them. And yeah, they. But you know, I think they got. I think they got a pretty fair measure of success. Um, but probably mostly uh, across the water, across you know, in Europe and Britain. Yeah. Um, did they had a successful like sort of a local career, um, but um, but they they did get a lot of press I thought and uh, I, and I always I always kind of thought it was funny that you know Kerrang just used to just love them and but you know Kerrang always loves different things so you know it wasn't just all hard rock but uh, yeah kind of interesting. Mm, I remember I, when I asked Mike Fraser, the engineer, he he worked in all the bands in Little Mountain. And I said, what band did you record that you thought it'd be massive and weren't? He said, Dan Reed Network, straight away. Yeah. It just never happened for him. So, so Brian, are you involved in the uh, the Queensryche book that's currently been worked on? Yeah. Yeah, we are. Um, we're about 85,000 words into it. Uh, Queensryche has been probably my number one band for 40 years. Um, I collect them. I know a lot about them. Uh, seen many shows, not as many as some people, but um, yeah, they, they, they. There was something about that band when I initially heard uh, the demo tape that really sparked my interest in them, and and I've followed them and supported them. Um, and uh, so when James and I were, we kind of finished writing the uh, the rusted metal book and. And we were looking forward to doing the edits and things. And we were kind of joking about, well, you know, we, we probably ought to be thinking about another book. And, and uh, I immediately right away said, you know, we need to do Queen's Right. Uh, you know, it's it was coming up on their 40th anniversary in the next couple of years, you know, depending on who you talk to. Um, but they never had a proper biography written about them. There were a couple of gentlemen in Germany, collectors, back in 1995, that put out a, a reference guide called uh, From Past to Present, and it just it outlined uh, record and CD collecting of Queensryche, and it was quite a nice book, and, um, lots of good information, kind of a um, kind of a lo-fi book for the most part. But you know, we both when I when I uttered those words, we kind of looked at each other like, you know, I can't believe that a band of this magnitude and this popularity and this uniqueness has never had a book written about them. So we, 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 uh, 
we decided that that was what we were going to do. Unfortunately or fortunately, uh, during the spring of last year when um, our area shut down for COVID, I was out of work for 17 weeks. Um, some things slowed down for James, although James, as a writer, could do a lot of what he does on his own. We, we started writing the book. We, we started um, collecting uh, up our information. I started filing through all of my resources that I've collected over the years. And um, we had created, again, the, the backbone of this book. And before we announced the book, I started lining up some people that I knew that also had information that we were, were going to need for the book, um, reached out to other people for their stories and, and we're preparing people to say, you know, we're, we're going to reach out to you. We're going to do interviews and this is what we're doing, looking to do for the book. And, you know, we've had a lot of, uh, a lot of really good interests and um, we've had a couple of really good interviews, um, uh, current interviews uh, with some people close to the band. Uh, we have, uh, we reached out to the band through management, through their social media manager with the rusted metal book and um, with the uh, current book that we're writing. Um, we have not heard back from anyone and uh, we, we hope that they would, but you know, we're confident and, and knew early on in this process, um, especially after the rusted metal book, that, that it was going to be okay because the, there's so many band interviews in the can, so to speak. Um, we had so much information I know so many people close to the band, um, just my relationship with the band over the years. Uh, I knew that we would be able to build our story built on the strength of the stories that these people would share with us, the facts that we already knew. And, uh, you know, we're, Queen's Rex always had kind of a stock story, you know, it's kind of always been kind of a Wikipedia kind of story. Um, nothing too left or right kind of bland not a lot of details um and i knew that i knew different i knew many details i knew a lot of information um that fans like myself or people who are just now kind of getting introduced to the band would love to know and so we have been assembling this book and uh, again like i said we we're lining up a, a few more people that will be real pivotal to our story. People who have never really talked about their associations with the band. And uh, we, we believe that this could be the definitive book uh, on the band. Just, just with the information that we, we know already. And, and it's at that point that Richie's recording inexplicably just decided to stop. Don't know why. He doesn't know why. We've done much longer interviews with people without any issue. But for some reason this time, yeah, it just like stopped recording. And he didn't even know it. So we had a great rest of conversation with Brian, but we'll never actually get to hear it. But I figured at least with all the good stuff that Brian did bring us on this one, I wasn't just going to scratch this and throw it away because of a dropout and so there you go again. Like, there's an hour's worth of great stuff about things you never probably knew about with the Pacific Northwest. 
And big thanks to Brian for coming on the show and really giving us a great rundown about all that stuff. And yeah, there's just there's just so many bands in there. And even as I was doing this and thinking, who am I going to put for the intro? Well, I just took the easy one and said, I'm going to put Mike Wilton up first and do that. But then in the middle where I was going to put an idea was like, oh, crap, you know, what do I do? Because, you know, we've talked to other great people out of the Pacific Northwest as well. But I just figured... I'm just going to keep it in a certain vein. So I decided that I would go with uh, Mike Howe from Metal Church, another great Pacific Northwest alum. And yeah, 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 I know. They started out in San Francisco and then moved up into Washington, but they are considered a Pacific Northwest band. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it, damn it. So that is it for this week. Not sure what's up for next week. Have a couple things going. I'm definitely trying to uh, carve out some time in my busy-ass schedule to get on the phone with Bob Nelbandian and really be able to dig in with him and talk about... uh, the second part of the San Francisco Godfathers Inside LA Metal deal that he's got coming out at the end of this month. I've seen the uh, I've seen it. It hasn't it isn't out, but I have seen it and it is awesome. And I'm very, very excited to talk to Bob about this because I want to be able to pass on that excitement to you guys, get you fired up as well. And uh, definitely good stuff. And big thanks to uh, to Bob for actually letting me get to see a sneak peek at that as well. And even though I hate watching things on a computer screen, it was well worth it to kick back and watch this. And I'm I'm still going out. I'm going to buy the DVD. I've got every last DVD in this set, and that is not going to stop now. But anyways, for this week, that's it. There ain't no more. Stick a fork in it. This puppy is done. So for Richie, myself, and everybody else here at Focus on Metal, Have yourselves a great meta week. Be safe out there. And as always, remember to focus on metal. Everything else is insignificant. Still here? It's over. Go home.